Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. In politics, when we say on the fringe, it means something at the extreme. Literally, on the fringe is not negative, but rather at the outer boundary or edge of something. In 1947... Edinburgh hosted the first Fringe Festival. And since that time, arts festivals featuring non-traditional performances, smaller in scale, have appeared in cities throughout the world. Atlanta has been among them for a decade. And later this hour, Executive Director Diana Brown will tell us about the current Atlanta Fringe Festival. Coloring books are not just for kids. Though today, we'll learn how a coloring book can teach us about destinations around the state of Georgia. First, a storyteller's guide to Atlanta area dining. Local author Amanda Plum has loved playing restaurants since she was a child. Now, in her new book, Unique Eats and Eateries of Atlanta, Amanda is showcasing some of our city's most interesting dining spots. The stories include the restaurant's colorful histories, their well-known dishes, and even some secret menu suggestions. When it comes to stories, Amanda Plum is an expert. She originally came to Atlanta to head up StoryCorps Atlanta. We were colleagues for several years, and it is a delight to welcome her now via Zoom. Amanda, welcome to City Light. Lois, thank you so much for having me. I am totally fangirling and so excited to reconnect with you. Um, honestly, if someone asked me why I wrote this book today, I would say it was so I could get interviewed by Lois Francis <laughs> and be on the radio, which isn't quite true, but it feels that way right now, I promise. Thank you. It's a fun book. Unique Eats and Eateries of Atlanta is part of a series of books with similar titles that each focus is on a different U.S. city. Amanda, how did you get involved with the project and tap to write the Atlanta edition? Well, to tell you the truth, I got an email from someone at Reedy Press saying, we're looking for someone in Atlanta to write this book. Do you know someone or would you be willing to do it? And I remember when I got that email being like, this is too good to be true. It's probably some scam. What's going on? And I didn't even follow up right away. But eventually I scheduled a call and it turned out that my dear friend, Jonah McDonald, who wrote Secret Atlanta and the Hidden Forest of Atlanta, he was working on a book for them and he had recommended me. And I think he recommended me for a couple of reasons. One, because of my storytelling background, you know, with StoryCorps and also I hosted a radio show called the North Avenue Lounge where I interviewed folks, but also I just have a passion for food and especially the Atlanta food scene. I had friends that we used to have a Buford Highway Supper Club where every month we would try a new restaurant on Buford Highway and we'd get together and we'd share a bunch of different dishes. We could try new foods. 
And several years ago, I started an underground restaurant with my friend Johanna, and it's called Chow Club Atlanta. And each month there, we'd have a different home cook share dishes from their home country. So we have people from you know, Syria and Afghanistan, Nigeria, Philippines, all over the place. It really brought people together to try different food. So this book really brings together my love of food, my love of the Atlanta food scene, and my passion for helping people tell their stories. Indeed. And you love the international aspect of Atlanta, which comes through resoundingly in this book. I imagine Chow Club had to go on hiatus with COVID-19. Will you start that up again anytime soon? Yes, we are in conversations with venues and chefs now to get it going again. I think part of Chow Club is you're seated with someone that you don't know. And so there's a sense of community that comes from dining with strangers and learning about food together. And we really couldn't do that during COVID, but now people are getting vaccinated and it's safe to start bringing people together in small groups. We're definitely looking at starting up again. It was touching to see the picture of dearly departed and legendary chef Rhea Pell. Her name and legacy live on with Rhea's Bluebird. Would you talk about your decision to include Rhea in this book? Yeah, I mean, so this book, it's interesting thing about what the book is not. So it's not just a review of restaurants. There's plenty of that on the internet right now. And it's not even a list of all my favorite places and stuff because there's way too many to be in this book. But I really wanted to highlight the people and the stories behind the restaurants that we love. And Rhea really just was this huge personality. I mean, she was this big butch lesbian who's always wearing like coveralls and she always had her hair high and tight done just right. And she was <laughs> tough. She used to be a bouncer um, at one point. And you kind of got that. Like there's no substitutions allowed, which people have tattooed on their arm, like some of her old employees. But she would also, you know, do anything for people, raise money, give them things they needed. You know, she's always doing things for the community, especially Atlanta's queer community um, and groups like Atlanta Harm Reduction Coalition. And, you know, to me, she was just such a larger than life personality that even though she's gone, her legacy is still here. Her spirit lives on in Rhea's and I wanted to honor that. I think the only other person I did that really has passed recently would be Anne from Anne's Snack Shop, yes. who also had this big personality. She was known for her rules and really enforcing them. And so I still wanted to, you know, I still want people to go to those places and celebrate the memories of people like Rhea and Anne. Yeah, because they're just amazing parts of our culture and their food is still amazing. Yeah, I think it's wonderful that you do include those legacies. Pascal's Restaurant holds pride of place in Atlanta history, in American history. Will you tell us about its origins and connection to the civil rights movement? Sure. I think everyone in Atlanta knows Pascal's, but I didn't really know anything about their history until I sat down with Mr. Slack, who was their historian, and he's been there since he was in his teens and was working there. So basically from the beginning. But Robert Pascal was a soda jerk at Jacob's Drugstore, which is right by all the HBCUs, and he would serve all the students from, you know, Morehouse and Spelman. And he knew that the food on campus wasn't great. And frankly, I don't think the food at the drugstore is that great. So he kind of wanted to open his own place, but he really didn't have the money to do that. But unbeknownst to him, his wife, Florine, had been saving his paychecks and she had the money for them to open up Pascal's. And so in 1947, they opened it up and people had heard about his famous fried chicken. And there was like a line out the door on day one, which would have been amazing, except for the fact that the stove broke. So they had no way of cooking <laughs> food. So what does he do? He picks up the phone and he calls Florine, who is at home, and she just starts cooking at home. And unfortunately, he had the car at the store, so she had to take a taxi with the food over to the restaurant on opening day. And they continued to do this for two weeks until they could raise enough money to get new equipment. So I love that story. Obviously, Florian just sounds like such a boss, but they, you know, they grew in 1959. They moved to a bigger space. They opened the La Carousel Lounge, which was a 
integrated music venue where Lena Horne, Curtis Mayfield, Gladys Knight, all the big ones came and performed. And in 1967, they opened a hotel because there's only two hotels in Atlanta that would serve African-Americans and none of them are right in that area. So they opened up a 120 room hotel and Martin Luther King had been dining at Pascal since he was a kid. And when the movement was starting, he went to them and asked if he could have some space for meetings. And they gave him a suite to use um, during the civil rights movement. And also Pascal staff would go and bail out some of the HBCU students that got arrested and they'd bring them to the hotel, let them stay the night, give them some food and make them call their parents to let them know they were okay. So they were definitely a big part of the civil rights movement. It's a marvelous history. It's so rich. Many of the restaurants in this book have menus that are reasonably priced, some easily affordable. You have some downright bargains. You also include special occasion dining, such as Bacchanalia. Why is the legacy of Chef Anne Quattrano and Clifford Harrison important to Atlanta? I think Anne is like our Alice Waters. You know, she really got her cooking chops in San Francisco. And at the time, San Francisco was kind of known for two things. They were where farm to table really started. And also a lot of the major chefs there, the most influential ones were women, people like Alice Waters and Judy Rogers and Joyce Goldstein. And so she moved to New York and worked in restaurants there, but she kind of um, sometimes got into some trouble with folks. In fact, she was fired from a job in 1992 for insubordination. And that's when she and her husband um, Clifford, who she'd worked really closely with, they moved to Atlanta and eventually opened Bacchanalia, which again, you mentioned, it's definitely a special occasion place. It's a prefix menu, it's amazing. But what they started doing early on was really sourcing local produce. And they were just champions of that. They really put their money where their mouth was and were willing to pay a premium for good local organic produce. They grow some on their farm um, and they use a lot of that. But really, they've been champions of groups like Georgia Organics and really help bring farm to table to Atlanta, which, again, now I feel like feels ubiquitous. But at the time when they were here in the early 90s, that was pretty new. So I really think she's kind of the godmother of, you know, organic local food being in restaurants here. Indeed. She's also a lovely person. There's a humility about her, which may seem unusual to people who think, oh, higher-priced menu means a place is snooty. She's not. Not at all. And she also has several concepts that are much, you know, at a different price point. For example, WH Styles Fish Camp in Ponce City Market is pretty innovative fish camp because they have really interesting dishes where they're maybe combining uh, Korean spices with, you know, catfish. Um, but I love it because it is something that you can get every day, whereas Bacchanalia is maybe not an everyday restaurant. No, at least not for most people's budgets. One odd note in the book, Amanda, is about the silver skillet in Midtown. Do you know why their bathrooms are located in their kitchen? <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny because <laughs> you literally have to go outside of the restaurant, go in through another door into their kitchen to get to the bathroom. And the reason why it is like that is simply because the, the founder of the Silver Skillet, Tommy Haygood, he actually drew out what he wanted the space to look like. And for the most part, it's pretty cool. It has this really cool retro 50s diner kind of vibe. But one thing he really wanted was to save money by putting the bathrooms in the kitchen. I think that way they wouldn't have to look that nice because you know they're not right there in the dining room. And his architect that he was working with really fought him on this, but you know he was the client, so he won. So to this day, you still have to go through the kitchen uh, to use the bathroom. I love the backstory of Bell Street Burritos. Would you talk about um, Matt Hinton's unusual path to being a restaurant owner? Sure. 
I love this one too, because I remember when it happened, I was actually an early adopter of Bell Street Burritos, which was then called Weston Burritos. So in 2008, Matt was an adjunct professor at Morehouse College. I believe he teaches religion. And when you're an adjunct, your classes only meet if you have a certain enrollment. So you have to kind of meet enrollment numbers. And that semester, one of his classes didn't. That meant that there were several thousand dollars that he was expecting to make that year that he wasn't going to make. So he had to think of a different way to make this income. Um, well, back in the 90s, he was a big fan of this place called Tortillas. Do you remember that, Lois? It was on Pont. I do. My family loved it. I love tortillas because it was really cheap, good burritos. I remember getting like the bean burrito and it was like two fifty, and you could get potatoes <laughs> and rice added for free, which I thought was like the best deal ever. Now as an adult, I realize those are really cheap ingredients in a way to, you know, actually save them some money, but it was just the coolest place. And Matt, like a lot of us, was a big fan of tortillas. So when it closed in 2003, he was heartbroken. But on their last day, tortillas actually gave out their recipes. So in 2008, when Matt was trying to figure out how he's going to make some money, he actually pulled out those recipes and emailed friends and said, hey, you know, I'm thinking about making these burritos. Do you want to buy some for me? And he made 50 burritos the first day. And it actually ended up kind of being a disaster because he burned the beans that day. So he had to start from scratch. And he was going around his van delivering burritos. I think the last one got delivered around 10 p.m. And it was just a horrible day. And the last thing he wanted to do was do it again. But he did. He did it every week that semester and really built this following. Well, when the semester was over, he was so excited to go back to teaching because he just had enough of this burrito hustle. And fortunately for us, unfortunately for him, uh, his class didn't make you know enrollment in the next semester. And so he really had to figure out what he was going to do. And at that point, you know, he was getting in the media and just people were really loving his burritos. So he actually got a spot at Sweet Auburn Curb Market and opened up Bell Street Burrito. And the reason why it's called Bell Street Burritos, which I had never heard this before, is there's a little street behind Sweet Auburn Curb Market that leads to the employee parking lot, and that is called Bell Street. And that's why it's called Bell Street Burritos. It's such a 21st century success story. It really underscores the importance of social media to the success of some small businesses, small restaurants especially. Yeah, and you know, when he was doing it, it was I believe that was before Instagram and before there were just a ton of pop-ups. But several started by having their own following on social media, doing pop-ups. You know, you have Talat Market and Little Bear, which are both in Summerhill. They're two great places that just opened before or during the pandemic and really had to adapt to that. Emerald City Bagels, which is in my neighborhood, they started, you know, just selling them in um, Cabbage Town where they lived and built a big following that way. And now they have their first brick and mortar here in EAB. And if you ever go on the weekend, there's a huge line because everyone loves to get their bagels. Um, so it's really cool to see a lot of the folks that have started and kind of transitioned from doing pop-ups to having a brick and mortar space. It is. Amanda, the Atlanta barbecue scene is diverse and full of amazing restaurants, certainly enough to fill a book of its own. How did you narrow down which barbecue places to include in unique eats and eateries? Lois, I'm so glad you said that because I actually wrestled with this for a really long time because there are so many barbecue places and it could be its own book. And I really was like, how do I even choose where to begin? And I ended up only having two in the book, Erlen Barbecue Market and Sweet Auburn Barbecue. And they're both really interesting. I mean, one thing I love about Erlen Market Barbecue is one of the co-owners was a former K-pop star. Yeah. So she was the Britney Spears of Korea and moved to the US and ended up going to culinary school and in the first restaurant she worked at, she met her now husband, Cody, who was, you know, a Southern boy who grew up going to meat and threes and barbecue joints. And they shared a passion for food. And on their dates, they would go to different barbecue spots and Korean restaurants, kind of sharing their cultures. And they learned there was a lot of commonality there in terms of ingredients or the types of ingredients. So they've created a Korean 
barbecue mashup. So not Korean barbecue, like when you think of going to Buford Highway for Korean barbecue, but it's Southern style barbecue with a lot of Korean influences. And they see it really as Atlanta style barbecue because it does kind of merge those cultures in a way that Atlanta does, that we are the city of transplants. And so we have that beautiful mix of cultures. And I think heirloom barbecue really shows that. Oh yeah, it's a, it's a winning combination. We have a friend who's often would ask what's not on the menu. And when we would go to a restaurant together and I always thought that was odd. <laughs> but you have some secret menu suggestions that you cover in the book. What are some of those? Yeah, that was one thing I asked everyone if they had any secret menu items. Um, one that I think is really neat is at Ticonderoga Club, every night before they close the kitchen, they make some bacon, egg, and cheese sandwiches, and they set those aside and you know, keep them warm. The reason why they do that is they want people in the industry, so people who work as servers and bartenders and cooks, to have a place to go late night and still get food, but even after the kitchens are closed. Um, and so that's not on the menu. That's something you can ask for. The Vortex has a secret menu that you can find on their website, and you have to think like a pirate. So there's a <laughs> look for something pirate themed and click on it and you'll find their secret menu. We loved the Vortex, especially when our kids were little. That was a favorite destination in Little Five Points. And of course, walking through that skeleton doorway was part of the appeal. The hamburgers are pretty good. When my daughter comes back from New York, she's got to go there for the grilled cheese and is it the hash brown, the tater tots? Yeah, they definitely have tater tots. And they have this whole coronary bypass menu where <laughs> it's love it. yes. but the buns are like grilled cheese sandwiches. And, you know, you might want to make sure that you have your life insurance, you know, up to date before you go try one of those. Um, but it's a pretty ambitious uh, eat if you want to try that one. Mm. Let's go back to Buford Highway, Amanda. Goose is sensational food. What makes it special? So I think what's interesting about Goo is before he ever opened his own restaurant, he was kind of like the fixer. He was a place when there were Chinese restaurants that really just didn't have, you know, success with their current staff. They just weren't doing good business. People would call him in and he would go and like, redo their menu and train the people that, you know, worked at the restaurant and really kind of fix them up. And so it's funny, he got a call from someone in 2010 who wasn't asking them to help fix his restaurant in Buford Highway, but asking him to take over it. And so he talked to his wife and they decided that, yeah, it was time for them to open their own restaurant. So he had a ton of experience um, before he even opened up his place. And he, when it opened, it was a really traditional Szechuan menu that had really exotic dishes like pork intestine and frog. And um, it, it was slow for people to pick up. I mean, it was always popular with some of the Chinese customers, but for American folks to really get excited, it took a little while. But when they got in Atlanta Magazine, it was over. People love that place, especially um, their dumplings, which is why now they actually have goose dumplings that you can find in Crog Street Market and up in Alpharetta because that was one of their most popular dishes. Like their daughter, when she was like clearing plates, people would like threaten her if she tried to take the plate from them if they hadn't like sopped up the, every last bit of the sauce. You know, it's that good. I think every meal should end with chocolate, Amanda. Actually, I don't even think it needs to be a part of the meal. I think chocolate is maybe the most important of the daily food groups. I love that you included chocolate. You know, I think I had spotted them. Of course, I was lured by the fabulous aroma when I was in Crog Street Market. And I saw the price tag at that time, $9 for a candy bar. I don't think so. And then when I heard about the lengths they go to to make sure that the farmers are well paid, that the whole creative process has integrity and cheats no one, 
not to mention the taste of it, I got it. And it's worth a splurge. Definitely. It makes a great gift. I've definitely given some of their bars just as a little present. When we think about coffee and wine, there are two types of food where it really matters where they're grown. You know, you can really taste it in the soil, you know, the soil in the finished product. You know, we talk about single origin coffee, meaning it comes from one place, from one farm. And chocolate's the same way. Like depending on where the beans are grown, they have a really different flavor. And so they're really focused on this single origin, small batch chocolate, where you can really get a sense of the quality of the raw produce. Um, and so it really is kind of artisan. It's, it's next level, right? It's a specialty chocolate. It's not your everyday thing you want to cook with, but it is something if you just want to savor just one piece of chocolate. They have one called the Soul Rebel, which has a Jamaican jerk spice blend, which has things like thyme and scorpion pepper and coconut milk in it, which I love. They also have one that is 100% pure, meaning no sugar. It's just Nicaraguan cacao. And it is super bitter. <laughs> I tried it once and I have to say, not my jam, but I do think it's something you should try because you really get to see what it's like. Because when we have chocolate, there's always sugar to some extent mixed in. So it's definitely really eye-opening to try it um, without any sugar. Is there a restaurant where you haven't dined because of COVID that's first on your list to return to when it feels appropriate? Well, so many places are opening up. They've been doing takeout, but are just opening up. So two of them that opened during the pandemic right before are Little Bear and Talat Market. And so I got takeout from both of those, but I'm really excited to go visit them and see their spaces and dine in them for the first time. I'm also really excited um, to be going up to spring and up in Marietta. That is just this really great special occasion place. I'm actually taking my parents there when they come to visit for the first time. Amanda Plum, this has been delightful. Best of luck with this book. And thank you for talking with me about it. Well, thank you. I really hope that this inspires people to go out and try more restaurants. It's been a really hard year for all of us, but especially the restaurant industry and the people that work in it. So I really hope and expect there's going to be a resurgence in Atlanta's culinary scene. And I hope this inspires people to get out there and try a new place or revisit an old favorite. Amanda Plum's Unique Eats and Eateries of Atlanta is available now. And you can join the author for a virtual launch event tomorrow, June 5th live from Keris Books. For more information, please visit our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Since 1947, when Edinburgh, Scotland hosted the first Fringe Festival, similar festivals in various cities have engaged audiences with performances not always available through mainstream outlets. The Atlanta Fringe Festival is celebrating its ninth year and kicked off its virtual events earlier this week with some pre-recorded performances. Starting this evening, the festival will add live-streamed performances. Diana Brown 
is the executive director of the Atlanta Fringe Festival. She joins us now via Zoom. Diana, welcome back to City Lights. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I know the decision to cancel last year's main live event was difficult. When did you decide to have this year's festival virtually? I guess it was probably around January of this year. We had hoped to get back on stages, but because we don't have our own space, the Atlanta Fringe doesn't operate its own venue. We do rent venues uh, in Little Five Points and in Candler Park usually every year. And this year, because we weren't open yet, you know, they weren't trying to rent, have rental uh, contracts, which makes perfect sense. So we were like, well, let's just go full force onto a virtual festival. And we actually got a lot of communications from artists over the last part of 2020 saying, hey, I've put together a virtual show that I really like and I'm really excited about and I want to share it. So we were like, wow, the artists are really, you know, getting into this virtual thing. So let's see what we got <laughs> to work with. Yeah. <laughs> So that was an unexpected benefit to the virtual festival. Any other unexpected advantages for the online festival? Definitely, definitely. I I know that uh, as a theater person myself, I know that we're all missing going to venues and kind of feeling that special, unique vibe that you get from theater. But it's been really cool to know, first of all, you can see every single show in our festival this year, which you usually can't. So that's pretty awesome. And some of the shows are coming from very far away, like Alaska and Amsterdam, and they wouldn't necessarily be able to join us if we were in person. So that's really cool, too. We're getting some some people from far off, (laughs) you know, and seeing some really interesting stuff from them. So that's been a really cool benefit as well. I think a lot of fringes are going to probably maintain a virtual uh, aspect for that reason so that we can all uh, get more international participation. Yeah. It's cool to have an option. And of course, it's very accessible as well. You know, you can put captions on all the videos and just really open it up to a lot of of new viewers. Yeah. I mean, it it needn't be instead of as we re-enter life as we knew it pre-pandemic. Michaelina Morin's dance event Beyond the Body sounds intriguing. What can you tell us about this performance? It's beautiful. Normally, she has the audience submit songs for her playlist before they come into the show. She has never heard them. So she does a completely improvised dance show when the music comes on. So you're just getting total feeling and talent and movement and expression just totally spontaneously from her. So the audience gets to see the creative process as well as the performance. Yeah, absolutely. You can kind of see how, I guess, her whole life of dancing kind of comes together in one moment when she hears that music. She doesn't know what she's going to get and it hits her ears and she just lets herself feel it and you just get a totally cool like artistic expression from her and it's really awesome Hmm. john street theater company will perform a work called staged which sounds like it could be hilarious and possibly horrible at the same time would you call this an experiment or a play (laughs) I guess it's a little bit of both. I'm really excited about that one. This is a show that you could not do in person too, which I think is really cool. This is a very much uh, virtual only COVID special where they decided to tell a bunch of family and friends, hey, you know, I've written the best play of my life and I really want you to come see it. And then they performed deliberately bad theater (laughs) for them and filmed their reactions. (laughs) So it's a play that's also a prank. And I think it's hilarious. She, they were talking a lot in their um, interview that they were like, people lie a lot when they come to your show. They like to be supportive, which is kind, you know, and they want to tell you what they liked about it. And um, <laughs> sometimes you just want to see what they really, <laughs> their unvarnished opinion <laughs> when you're performing and you can see it on their face that they don't love it. So I'm very excited about that as a theater person. We've all seen bad theater. We've probably done bad theater. So <laughs> I'm pretty excited to see how that one turns out. (laughs) Have you ever seen the producers? 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you remember the shot of the audience's expression after they've seen Springtime for Hitler on stage. That was exactly what the pranksters wanted so they could make off with the money. Exactly. Yes. So maybe that's uh, maybe this is a producer's redux. (laughs) (laughs) Diana, is there something that you absolutely think should not be missed? Well, staged is really at the top of my list, but also the next stage, the panic attack play looks absolutely fabulous. This is a a woman named Caitlin Graham who had a panic attack while she was performing. It's like an actor's worst nightmare. And um, she wrote this show kind of all about her journey through her mental health. And it's a really powerhouse performance. I hope people check that one out because it's very intimate and it's very gutsy. And she's just she just lays it all out for you. And it's a really good performance. I'm pretty excited about Dawson's Creek Live, a tributary. I like comedy, so (laughs) I'm excited to see a Dawson's (laughs) Creek uh, parody. (laughs) And um, the Abbey Theater of Dublin, Ohio, is doing a one uh, It's a solo show about Charlottesville. And um, it's all taken from interviews and information and Twitter threads and everything else about the protests in Charlottesville where uh, a woman was hit by a car and killed and um, kind of talking a lot about race and a lot about race brutality and a lot about white supremacy. And it's really powerful show as well and uh, very cool staging and multimedia kind of presentation. And uh, the artist is really cool. Her name's Priyanka Shetty. Excited to see what she's got to say. The Atlanta Fringe Festival once again has a competition element. How are the winners selected and what type of prizes can they win? Um, Well, we have a critics panel for both our, our virtual and our audio festival, and it's made up of just experts in the field. We get Um, dancers, choreographers, uh, writers, both stage and screen. We get um, storytellers, we get actors. Um, A lot of just really talented people offer up their time to just watch the shows and then score them uh, based on, um, it's kind of hard as you can, because there's a lot of different types of shows. (laughs) So we try to really uh, have a scores about creativity and risk-taking and how was the writing, how was the sound design, just everything that you can possibly say about the show. And then whoever gets the highest score gets a cash prize. So the Critics Choice Award for the Virtual Fringe will walk walk away with $250 in cash. And then we also have a Producer's Choice Award for the Virtual Fringe, and that's chosen by the Atlanta Fringe Steering Committee. And it's basically about the producer itself, not so much about the show, although if it's a really good show, it does help. But uh, usually it's about the producer itself, like how how well did they do actually the business of art? How well did they market their show? How much were they involved in the, in the process and, and everything like that? Because it's kind of both with a fringe. You're a little bit of an entrepreneur with us. Um, we're sort of a producing partner. So you have to market your own show. You have to figure out all the staging and you have to keep up with deadlines and all that normal stuff. So we like to award that drive and that kind of work as much as we can. And and then we have two audience choice awards, one for bigger ensemble shows and then one for solo and small ensemble shows. And that's chosen by the audience. So there's an audience uh, choice ballot on our website and people can go on there and say, I loved this show and I want them to watch walk home with some cash as well. And then the Critics' Choice Award for Audio is also chosen by experts, podcasters, and audio engineers and uh, producers, and they walk home with $100. And if there's a tie, it's the show with the most listens that takes it home. So the audience has a lot to say for for these artists. So definitely check them out and give them reviews and tell them what you think, because they can really, they can benefit a lot from your opinion. (laughs) Very helpful. Let's talk more about the fringe audio. Mm-hmm. How does this serve the podcasting community? I think it's cool uh, for podcasters to have a producing partner, much like a, an individual artist, um, because, you know, when you kind of, especially when you do your own podcast with nobody else, you're sort of thrown into a very, very competitive field. There's a billion podcasts out there. 
Um, so it's just a way to kind of have someone else in your corner, telling people about your show, pushing it out to different channels. And also because it's open access, we just, it's a first come first serve model that we use. So even if it's your very first podcast, or you're just kind of getting into it, or you want to try something weird, it's a great place to take a risk. So we've had some really cool um, podcasts that have had many, many episodes, or they're from a radio theater company, and they know exactly how to do Foley, and they're really, really amazing recordings. We have people who give us weird sound experiments where you need to put on your headphones and sit in a dark room, and you're like, who knows what will happen to you? <laughs> we have a lot of scary stories and family stuff. So uh, it's great for us because it opens up a lot of categories and it's pretty easy to host them because, of course, it's all audio. So you just, <laughs> you're just kind of like, hello, put, come over to my website. Um, but I think it's great for artists too to just have a, another person telling people about their show, get you some different listeners that maybe you wouldn't have reached otherwise and give you a chance to, yeah, just try something crazy. For audiences, the Atlanta Fringe Festival offers a chance to see a lot of wonderful performances over a brief period. And for artists, it can possibly be their best chance at high visibility. Diana, who are some past performers that have gone on to wow future audiences? There definitely are some. I know there's several fringes where their shows have gone on to Broadway or their shows have gone on to Amazon Prime in the case of like Fleabag was an Edinburgh fringe show or Lin-Manuel Miranda was originally in Fringe. Um, Mighty Boosh and the Flight of the Concords were originally at a Fringe Festival. So not ours specifically necessarily, but Fringe can be definitely a, a trampoline to higher heights. Diana Brown is the executive director of the Atlanta Fringe Festival. The festival is ongoing through June 13th, and you can learn more about it on our website wabe.org slash City Lights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Coloring books aren't only for kids. Adult coloring books have been available for several years and highly recommended to relieve stress. No wonder the activity is popular with all age groups. Coloring is fun and engaging. With that in mind, Explore Georgia, part of the state's tourism department, has created a coloring book to help parents engage and stimulate kids' imaginations without leaving the house. Megan Hood leads creative content for the state's tourism division. She joins me now with Mariana Costa of the Blue Sky Agency in Atlanta. Thanks for Zooming in and welcome to City Lights. Happy to be here. Thank you for having us, Lois. Before we get to coloring books... What resources can we find on the Explore Georgia website? On the Explore Georgia website, you can find all sorts of travel information about every part of the state of Georgia. ExploreGeorgia.org is the primary source for all travel in Georgia. So you can find inspiration about new ideas and places to travel all the way from the mountains down to our coast, through all the cities, through the southern part of our state. Um, we have lots of wonderful travel ideas and trip inspiration there. When COVID-19 first started um, impacting Georgia, we looked at the Explore Georgia website and realized that it was really important for us to share travel information um, related to the pandemic. But we also started realizing that there was an opportunity to still continue to inspire people and share information about this beautiful state with them. You know, people were looking um, and spending more time on digital media and their social feeds. And we realized really quickly that there was an opportunity to give them a respite from all the craziness um, that was happening in the world and to inspire them with the beautiful um, sights and sounds and places throughout the state. I have to confess, I got rather lost with enjoyment looking at the different spots around the state from 
the coastal isles to the mountains and savannah and of course atlanta and then the providence canyon that's some place we've never been where i really want to go yeah it's really stunning and there's i mean i was born and raised here and i'm still discovering places in the state and that's really um, one of our biggest moments of pride is when we can introduce even native georgians to new places they've never seen before so we can explore Georgia from home. Would you tell us about the official travel guide? Yeah, absolutely. The um, travel guide um, from Explore Georgia is a comprehensive resource to travel the state. This year's guide is really special because the vast majority of photography in the guide comes from real visitors who have traveled the state and it's all of their photography. So it's all user generated content. Even the cover of the guide comes from real people having real travel experiences. And that's really important to us because um, nothing is more interesting than, you know, getting a recommendation from a friend and knowing that they've been to that place and really enjoyed it. So using other people's photography in this guide was really important to us. There is a page on the website titled Learn From Home with Georgia Chefs. Who are some of those chefs? Yeah, so we were able to source information from chefs all over the state. There's a great chef right here in Pont City Market. He was giving lessons about how to make great sandwiches. There's um, a chef down in St. Simon's Island who was helping people learn how to make pasta. So, you know, these wonderful chefs throughout the state are really helping Georgians, you know, while they're at home, learn new tools and skills. So it's been really fun to kind of follow along with them. Mariana, how did the collaboration between Explore Georgia and the Blue Sky Agency come about? Well, we knew through this time that none of us were really experts at marketing. <laughs> you know, we were in this new normal, but we knew we had to stay connected. That was the big challenge, right? So what we wanted to do through things like the coloring book and engaging the chefs, because we knew that social activity and digital activity was up something like 30, 40%. And that's how people were connecting with each other and staying informed. Things like uh, knowing that the kids were home, right, from school and parents needed things to do, knowing that everybody was cooking more, which is how we engaged the chefs. Uh, we wanted to play off this new normal to keep people connected and keep them engaged and bring a little brand closeness so we couldn't tell them to uh, go out and explore the state, right? We really had to be humans here. And connect not as marketers, but as humans. And I think we came together really well to do that. How did Blue Sky identify the places in Georgia to highlight for the coloring book and the digital puzzles? Well, we had to listen, right? We, we listened uh, to really know what people were missing, the places that they were wanted to explore after this was all over. We do have some knowledge on a few things that, uh, you know, like Driftwood Beach, and we had put out some content of 30-second videos of spots in the state that you could go tune in on our social channels and listen to the, the water come in at Driftwood Beach or, you know, the mountains of Georgia. So. We picked some beautiful places that we knew people loved, but also places that would cue somebody wanting to go to explore. Mm. Do you think incorporating digital elements will remain a part of Explore Georgia? Yeah, digital elements have always been part of our marketing mix for Explore Georgia. It's an incredibly important element and when we were developing all these new tools within the Explore Georgia from Home campaign, we really had an eye on that for the future to make sure that we could continue to use these really creative and innovative approaches. So for instance, you know, the coloring pages are definitely something that we could print out and offer to guests when they come through our welcome centers. We have 11 welcome centers throughout the state at all the borders. So that would be a great resource to hand to a family when they come through to look for information and pick up some brochures and take a rest on their trip. And we can print out those coloring pages at home. Yes, absolutely. You can print the coloring pages at home if you go to exploregeorgia.org 
forward slash from home. You can download the pages and each page has um, a little factoid on it. So they're great as an education piece for kids, but they're also really appropriate for adults to color in as well. And the coloring pages are also made from real um, photos that guests took, that visitors took when they were visiting the state. So you've got some from the aquarium, Okefenokee Swamp, Tybee Island, all of people's favorite places throughout the state. Yeah, I can't wait to color the Callaway Gardens page. And I also like the Tiny Doors and the Providence Canyon page. Yes, Providence Canyon is one of my favorite coloring pages. It's really, really fun, especially if you get your watercolors out. Oh, my. I have a lot of crayons. (laughs) Haven't moved on to watercolors yet. What do you think travel and hiking will look like for the rest of this summer? Yeah, travel in Georgia for the rest of the summer, I think it's, you know, it's a little unpredictable. We know through our research that people are wanting to get out and travel, but um, we also know that folks are looking to stay a lot closer to home and to get out and to explore the outdoors. So Georgia, you know, has wonderful assets for that between our state parks and our beaches and our mountains. You know, there's wonderful places, right, where people can, you know, get out and kind of shake off those indoor willies a little bit, if you will. (laughs) Well, this has been very enjoyable. Megan Hood, Mariana Costa, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having us. It's our pleasure. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. Our theme music is The First Time, written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Our producer is Summer Evans. Shelly Canavy is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at WABE City Lights. Listen back to other interviews from our show's archives at wabe.org slash citylights. Wishing you a safe and good weekend. And thanks for listening to WABE. Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.